0: We've had a great time here. We, the team from Utah, we wanted to thank you guys from Denver because you guys have been tremendous hosts between your sack lunches with like your love note verses in there. Your, uh, the giving up your beds to some of us has been very nice. And uh, it's been a lot of tables and chairs and food and logistics you guys have had to coordinate. So, Salt Lake, let's give Denver a round of applause. I did grow up in Brighton, Colorado. I graduated from Brighton High School in 1995. I did go to CSU, graduated in '03. And if you cut me, I bleed orange and blue. we had a great time on campus on Friday. There was this one guy I saw passing out. He was passing out. It looked like tracks or something. And so I walked up to him and he's like, yeah, it's all about Jesus, man. He hands me this track. And I said, hey, we're on the same team, buddy. And I pulled out a track and I handed it to him. He's like, is this about a church? I said, well, it's about Jesus, but we're with the firehouse church. And he's like, it's not about a church, man. It's about Jesus. And I, I said, no, it's about Jesus, but Jesus loves the church. And he said, there's no churches that love Jesus. It's all about about Jesus. And so bumped into the Jesus loving church hating Christian on but I told him, I said, there are communities of believers in this town that love God and are trying to follow him. We're not perfect, but I said, I know some people that love Jesus and are Christians or in a church. So this series, I don't know if you've seen the flyer or the poster, it says get a life on it. That's the theme of our study of first John. So the question is, where is life found? A lot of people today believe that life is found in sex and relationships. Someone who we think of when we think of someone who's having crazy or had crazy sex, Tiger Woods. His uh, sexual exploits, more details than we need to know, have been all over the media and websites for the last number of months. This man is playing the worst golf of his whole life now. He just lost his wife to a divorce. He's just lost his kids. He's probably lost hundreds of millions of dollars. He is playing like a broken, depressed man right now. But he had crazy sex for years. It's destroyed his life. Where is life found? Maybe life is found in drugs and alcohol. Bumped into some people on campus that they just live for drinking, partying, getting high. When we were on campus, we talked to this guy named Wolf, who was about 50 years old. That was not his real name, I am sure. But he would not tell me. He's about 50. He's been on the street for decades. And some people say, oh yeah, the life is found in getting high and getting drunk and partying. Wolf has probably consumed more drugs and alcohol than this whole room combined. (laughs) He told me his life is hell. He said, this is hell, my life. Where's life found. A lot of us go, well, life is found in education and money. You go to school, you get a career, you get a good job, you make a ton of money. So you can drive a sweet car and live in a great house. But right now, the average college student graduates with $20,000 in student loans and no guarantee of a job in this economy. I know people personally who got a degree in college and have sent out, sent out 200 applications and nobody offered them a job. Those lucky enough to get a job and buy a house, the recent economic collapse has literally destroyed trillions of dollars in our home values, according to Bloomberg, and trillions of dollars in retirement funds, according to the IMF. It's hard to find much satisfaction in things that collapse and lose value. The most telling statistic related to money not giving us life is this, the socio-economic group with the highest suicide rate is millionaires. They have achieved what we're like. If I was a millionaire, I would have life. They get that million dollars and they arrive, and it is not satisfying, and a lot of them kill themselves. So where is life found? If it's not found in relationships and sex and alcohol or money, where do we look? We're going to spend the next 30 minutes plowing through the person who gave you your life, his writings in the Bible. Let's spend 30 minutes studying a short chapter in a short book in the Bible. It's on House Bible. It's on page 1207 under your seat. It's a letter. It's First John. You know this. The Bible is not one book written by one man at one time. It is a series of letters and books and poems and histories written by 40 authors over 1,400 years, all compiled into one. God inspired these people to write down His thoughts on life. You are holding in your hand a compilation of books and letters. It's God's Word. It's His thoughts on life all day long if we're talking to our friends at work on the job site if we're watching TV at the end of the day we're watching a movie we're listening to our iPod or listening to the radio driving around or you're on your phone talking to a buddy or a friend the world is constantly telling us life is found in relationships life is found in getting high or parting life is found in money or your home let's change it up let's listen for 30 minutes to what God has to say about life Who wrote this letter? You can probably guess from the title. John. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Jesus selected 12 men that would be his primary group that he taught for his three-year ministry. These men, after they spent their three years with Jesus, spent the rest of their life telling everybody they bumped into about Christ. In fact, all of these men were so bold. I mean, we feel like, oh, we're crazy bold passing out a track to some college student without our knees shaking. These men were so bold with the gospel that all of them, except for John, were killed for their faith and it's not that they did not try to kill John according to tradition they tried boiling him alive in oil but he survived so this is John one of the followers of Christ he wrote five books of the Bible the Gospel of John 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the crazy end times book Revelation John was very close to Jesus he saw all the amazing miracles that Jesus did he saw the transfiguration he heard Christ teaching he saw Jesus raise people from the dead He walked with Jesus and learned from the greatest preacher who has ever lived. But he was also there for the terrible part. He was there when they accused Jesus falsely and they nailed him to a cross. Jesus, dying on the cross, turns to this John who wrote this book and said, Take care of my mom. You know you're pretty tight with Jesus when he turns to you and says, Please look after mom for me. And the Bible tells us Jesus did the impossible and rose from the dead three days later. Regardless of what you think happened at the resurrection, even a casual glance at history says something profound happened that day. Because these 11 men, these followers of Christ, transformed the world. They were so bold and passionate with this message that those 11 men, the entire planet, looks different 2,000 years later. So this is a book we're studying. It's a letter written by John about 85 A.D., 50 years after Jesus had walked on the earth. John's old. He's probably got some pretty bad scars from being boiled alive and burning oil. by this time, most of John's buddies have been killed off for following Jesus. Originally, Jesus taught his group the right beliefs about God. But with time, those right beliefs or doctrine about God have been attacked. So you have this old man writing a letter to young Christians, teaching them some of the foundational truths about God. So as we get into this letter the next five weeks, it's going to talk about love and life and salvation and the right beliefs about God. On campus on Friday, I talked to one person who said, I said, what happens when you die? He said, I just get buried in the ground and I cease to exist. Then I talked to another person. They said, this life is hell. This is hell right here. Then I talked to a third person who said, oh, everybody goes to heaven. They cannot all simultaneously be right. I do not care how bad you did in school this morning. You must understand a logical fallacy that all those people cannot be right at the same time. Let's see what Jesus inspired John to write. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is a bold claim by John. In your Bible, circle the word heard and seen and touched and looked. Throughout that first paragraph, John is stating his credentials to speak about God. He's saying, we saw Jesus, we heard Jesus, we touched Jesus. He says, the one who is from the beginning, there's only one who's been from the beginning. That's the God, the God-man Jesus. And that section is very similar to the introduction of the Gospel of John. John's stating his credentials. At this time, there was a heresy springing up from the Gnostics who said, even 50 years after Jesus existed, people are like, oh, Jesus did not exist historically. So John's like, really? You're saying you you don't believe Jesus? Because I actually saw him, so your case sucks. (laughs) He said it much more eloquently than that. Verse 3, look at verse 3. It says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Jesus just asked his original followers to tell everybody what they had seen and heard. In other words, Christ asked them to be witnesses. Reminds me of LeBron James. You're familiar with LeBron James? You're from Denver. Basketball's not a very big deal in this city, so... He is a famous NBA player. Anyway, LeBron James played for a team called the Cleveland Cavaliers. He just switched from Cleveland to Miami this summer. For the last five years in Cleveland, there's been a giant billboard that's 200 feet wide and 100 feet tall with LeBron with his arms outstretched like this and says, We're all witnesses. And there's the Nike Swish. Nike is telling us we are witnesses of LeBron James' greatness. John is telling us, as Christians, we are witnesses of Christ's greatness. We're all witnesses. One significant way the greatness of Christ is seen is in the transformation of believers. I know people who have sexual histories as checkered as Tiger Woods, but God has transformed their life and they are incredible husbands. I know people who wasted entire decades of their life doing drugs. But Jesus has transformed their life and they're some of the most amazing people I know. I know people who grew up in homes with abuse, incest, and divorce. They have met Jesus and they're some of the most amazing parents and spouses I know. If you are a Christian and you are here this morning, you are a witness of what Christ has done in your life. Verse 3 says, We proclaim what we have seen and heard. So we've got 2,000 years of witnesses in the church. John says, We told people what we saw, and most people told people what they saw, and most people told people what they saw, and that chain has been going on for 2,000 years. If you are a Christian, you need to tell people what Jesus has done in your life. A witness does not have to be convincing, or eloquent, or a gifted communicator. All they need to do is say what they saw. I was almost in a really bad car accident a couple of weeks ago. Cops did not say, prove your case. Tell us what. They just said, fought this form. Tell us what you saw. That's all we need to do. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. I'm a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus has transformed the lives of people in this room. It is worth you spending some time investigating their stories. So, John's audience might be reading the letter at this point and they say, All right, John, we get it. You saw Jesus. What did he say? Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, there is no darkness in him. He's, John is using an analogy to teach us the truth about God. God is light. That means God is pure, he's holy, he's perfect. And he's saying there's no darkness, there's no wickedness in God. So we have a kid's pool that's about 10 feet wide, about 2 feet tall. And it sits in our backyard, and we fill it up and the kid's play, and then I dump it out, and we move it somewhere else in the lawn so my grass doesn't have all these big dead spots. So all summer long, we're moving this pool around the yard. And I dumped it recently, and I threw it in the corner, and I forgot about it for a couple of days. I came back to mow, and I flipped it over, and there were 50 or 60 of those earwig bugs. I don't know if you know them. I've never seen them in Colorado, but they're about that big, They've got these two little nasty looking spikes on their tail. They're called earwigs because people used to think they'd crawl in your ear. (laughs) But they're benign. You just squish them and move on with your life. (laughs) Earwigs love dark, wet environments. So I flip over this pool and there's about 50 or 60 earwigs. And I was like, sweet. So I ran it out to the road and I dumped it on the road and I squished them all. That's what happens when people come in contact with God. Except for He doesn't squish us. When people in contact with God, they love living in the dark, they love living in their sin, they come in contact with God God is light, He is pure He's sinless, His bright spotlight comes on our life and we scatter like earwigs (laughs) God says I made you, I am God, you should obey me, God has thoughts about our sexuality, how that's expressed, our money, how we spend that, our time, what we do with our time what our marriage should look like what our parenting should look like And when we're exposed to His thoughts through the Word, we tend to scatter. Are you calling me a pervert, God? Are you calling me a drunk? Are you calling me a bad husband? Are you calling me a bad dad? You're saying I'm a warrior, I'm a gossip? God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. When people are called sinners by God's Word through the Holy Spirit working in their heart, we have three bad responses to this conviction of sin. So John is going to refute three basic misconceptions when God's Word says, actually, God is holy and pure and light, and you are wicked and sinful. Response number one. Actually, if you circle in verses 6, 8, and 10, if we claim, if we claim, and if we claim, in 6, 8, and 10, those are three arguments that John is responding to. So John is saying God is right. He's holy, He's pure, and we are wicked and sinful. Verse 6, people say, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So some people hear God is light. And they go, no, God, is, God and me are tight. God is everywhere. God is in me. God is, God's my co-pilot. God is my co-pilot, God and I are tight, but I can sleep with who I want to sleep, I can drink what I want to drink, I can spend my money any way I want to spend it. If you are a Christian or not, John says, if you say that, you're lying. Deep in your heart, you know you cannot be tight with God and walk in sin. We know we are not telling the truth when we say that. In everyone's core, they know that to be true. To walk in the darkness means to live in habitual sin. One person said, character is what you do in the dark. Some of our favorite sins happen at night in the dark. Our sins with people that are not our spouse. Our sins with stuff we watch on TV. Our sins with websites we click to late at night when nobody's watching. You cannot say I am tight with God and live in habitual sin because meeting Jesus should change you. God gives us a new heart the instant we become a Christian. You meet Jesus in your position or your standing with God is transformed instantly. And then God spends the rest of your life systematically putting more spotlights into more of the dark corners of your life. The things that never bothered us before we were Christian start to bother us once we get saved. I know this is true because I've seen God change people in this room and in my life. This room is full of people that God is changing. Verse 7 is significant. He says, If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Our sin separates us from God, but it breaks all the relationships around us. Once we become a Christian and God starts working on our life, our relationships around us can start to be healed. I've seen God's love and God's truth on marriage transform couples that were yelling at each other and abusive. They're at each other's throats, and now they have amazing marriages. As they started to walk in the light, their marriage is this dark, stinky, dirty room. You do not want to go in there. God's like, let's open up this room. Spotlight. you are like, oh, all right, we need to grow in that area, God. I've seen God's light transform marriages. Okay, the second objection to being called a sinner. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So John hits the second response. The next heresy or incorrect belief is people say, oh, I've stopped sinning. Verse 6, we lie, we say, oh, I can sin and be tight with God. Verse 8 says, we've deceived ourselves in our own heart. Because we say we've stopped sinning. Years ago in high school, I worked for a landscaping company. A bunch of Christian guys working, putting in sprinklers. Two of my coworkers, they were these two brothers, and they said, our dad had stopped sinning. And I, being kind of a punk, was like, really? That's neat. Liars. (laughs) So their dad came and visited us on a job site once. He talked to the boys. He talked to the foreman. He left. And he drove away. And I was like, we were in the presence of a perfect man. (laughs) They did not like me mocking their dad. Which was probably rude, and I should not have done in retrospect. But this verse is crystal clear. None of us transcend sin. You will battle sin the rest of your life. And Lord willing, you become more like Jesus the longer you live. But we never arrived. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the devil is perfectly content to see you become pure, brave, self-controlled, provided all the time. He's setting you up into the sin of pride. And verse 9 is great. It says we need to confess our sins to God. Some of you come from religious backgrounds where every week you confess your sins to a religious leader. Confession like that does not save you. Confession is telling God what He already knows. It's bringing God's light into a dark, sinful room in your life. I have a buddy in Salt Lake who's a great example of this. He will call me or email me and he'll say, Josh, God showed a sin in my life. I confessed it to him and I just want to let you know too. He confesses his sin to God and then he shares his sin with a brother in the church. He drags, it shines a big old spotlight on the sin in his life in that darkness. God is light. He hates sin. Drag your sin, the thing in your heart right now that is your dark spot, grab it and drag it into the light. Confess it to God and tell it to a brother or sister. Verse nine is great. We confess our sin to God. Hey, God, here's the dirty nasty. It says God will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. When some of us have sinned sexually, we feel dirty inside and we go take a shower. Or some of us, when we sin in a way that we're convicted and we know it's wrong, we try to live on the straight and narrow for a number of weeks or months so that those feelings of guilt can recede in our mind. John says, no, you take that sin to God and you tell Him about it and He will forgive you and purify you. The final heresy, verse 10, this is the third bad response to conviction of sin. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. The verb tense in this verse means that this person is saying, I have never sinned. So the final response to the conviction of sin is, sin, I've never sinned. John says, if we say that, we are calling God a liar. And we are ignoring what He has written in the Bible about our sin. The Bible is very clear. Every person who has ever lived is a sinner. You need to realize that. So our world tells us life is found in sex or relationships. It's found in getting high or partying. It's found in money, career, cars, and homes. But if we're honest in our heart, we know none of these truly satisfy us. So we turn to God. We approach God. He's this blinding light of purity and holiness. We feel wicked and we feel sinful, dirty inside and out. Some people, when they feel this conviction, they say, Oh, I can sin and still approach God if I squint. Other people say, oh, I've stopped sinning. I can approach God. Others say, I've never sinned. I can approach God. John says all three of those responses are false. So where do we turn for life? Where do we turn? Which is going to cover chapter 2 next week? But let's do a little bit of it. Let's end on a little bit of an upbeat note here. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, imagine old John, he's scarred, he's writing this letter to young Christians. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we strive not to sin, but John says Jesus will cover it. Jesus is the only righteous one, He's the only one that could pay the price for your sins. You guys know this, the Bible is crystal clear. Every one of us here is a sinner. The Bible says every one of us deserves eternal punishment in hell because of our sin. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but Jesus paid the price. He died on the cross for your sins, and all you need to do is accept that payment and become a believer. The world says, no, forget God. Life is found in sex or money or partying. That's a lie. We need to find the true life which is found in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to study your word. God, I I just pray that we would be men and women who walk in the light. I pray, God, we would not justify our sin and say, I can sin and still be right with God. I pray we would not say, God, I've stopped sinning or I've never sinned. God, I pray we would be men and women that open up our lives to your light. We let you clean out the garbage in our life, God. And there's probably some people here this morning that have never become a Christian. Their life is full of darkness and sin. I pray that today would be the day that they bring the light of God into their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we're done. Have a good week.